This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for tuning in. My name is Patrick White, and I'm your guest host tonight, as Richard Serrett is away on a top-secret mission. I can't tell you what it is, because I'm afraid the men in black would show up. Just a quick programming note. Next week, Richard Serrett will also be away. So Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zeland News Network, will be here in the captain's chair, along with Rosemary Ellen Guiley and some other great guests. Victor is no stranger to the program, so be sure to tune in and check it out. Now, some of you may know who I am, but for those of you who don't, a little bit about myself. My beautiful wife, Kadena, and I opened Conspiracy Culture Bookstore back in August 26, 2006. That's a triple eight for those who know their numbers. After years of realizing just how difficult it was to acquire books and materials that dealt with the subject matters uh, that you hear so often on this program, it was like trying to find a leprechaun riding a unicorn on the 30th of February. So we sell rare and hard-to-find books, some really cool DVDs, magazines, T-shirts, some hard-to-find alternative health products. We've got a really great art gallery uh, with new exhibits every few months. Nicola is great. She curates the space. And because community is such a big thing, uh, we've done over 70 events in the seven-plus years that we've been open uh, with people like Roseanne Barr, Richard Dolan, Michael Cremo, Stanton Friedman, Judith Very Baker, George Norrie, G. Edward Griffin, Colin Ross. Uh, we've even had Victor Vigiani and Richard Serrett stop by and spend some time in the shop. And we'll be doing some fun things this year as well. And you can see what we're up to at any time by visiting our website, conspiracyculture.com. And I've been listening to Richard Serrett for almost a decade now. So for me to be a part of this program this evening, uh, it's an absolute treat. 
and an honor. Richard's program is extremely important as it provides a platform for some incredible guests. And you will hear things that will never be discussed by the mainstream media. You can rest assured that every week you're going to get a fascinating perspective that's incredibly objective. And if you're still hungry for more, you can always check out Richard's website, which is open 24-7 at richardserrett.com. A virtual cornucopia of information. You can check out past shows, read up on his guests. You can also sign up and subscribe to his newsletter. Uh, I heard Richard mention that he's got a goal of 500 subscribers. So let's see if we can surprise Richard uh, tonight by boosting that number up substantially. And I was clicking around on Richard's website earlier, reading an article about machines potentially fighting humans in the not-too-distant future for our resources. And there was a quote by a gentleman, Gary Marcus, that went, It's likely that machines will be smarter than us before the end of the century. Not just at chess or trivia questions, but at just about everything, from mathematics and engineering to science and medicine. And uh, it made me think of that scene from 2001, A Space Odyssey, when the computer Hal warned his human operators, I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. (laughs) It's a scary thought for some, the merging of man and machine. Uh, Some say it's the answer to death and disease, a way to eliminate aging, enhance human intellect, and some foresee the merger ultimately bringing about immortality. And that's the musical question this week, as we ask, would you want to live forever? And to help answer the question, our guest is a recognized scholar whose credentials include a PhD in philosophy from the University of Oxford. His literary contribution is a veritable resume unto itself, covering such fields as Nazi Germany, sacred literature, physics, finances, the Giza pyramids, and music theory. A renowned researcher with an eye to assimilate a tremendous amount of background material, he is able to condense the best scholastic research and publication and draw insightful new conclusions on complex and controversial subjects. Dr. Joseph P. Farrell is the co-author of Transhumanism, a grimoire of alchemical agendas, which reveals what may become of human civilization, who is setting the agenda, and why. Published by Farrell House. Joseph Farrell, thank you so very much for joining us this evening. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be back here. Great. And 
First, I'd like to say what a pleasure it is for me to get my first on-air interview with a gentleman such as yourself. Uh, Your books have been extremely popular at my bookstore over the years, and I'm absolutely certain that some of my customers are tuning in, and some of them are actually members of your website. Well, cool. (laughs) Yeah, and one of your most recent works, uh, Transhumanism, Uh A Grimoire of Alchemical Agendas, uh, deals with a very interesting and timely topic. But before we move forward, could you please explain what transhumanism is? Well, that's a good question. Um, in fact, my, my co-author, Dr. Scott DeHart, and I, when we were researching and writing this book, we were at a bit of a loss to figure out if we were dealing with a movement or if we were dealing with a philosophy. And we finally decided that what we were dealing with was neither. We were dealing with kind of a modern, updated version of of alchemy. Because alchemy, if you look at it very closely, if you're familiar with the literature, it's really all about transmutation and transformation. And that includes not just the old idea that everyone's familiar with of of turning, you know, base metals into gold, but it's also about, more importantly, transforming mankind himself. And we, once we made that, that conclusion, the book kind of fell into place, because alchemy, if you look at it very carefully, if you look at esoteric doctrine, hermetic doctrine, whatever you wish to call it, it basically describes the descent or creation of the world in, in four basic stages. And and these are very important for people to understand the way we lay out the book. At the top of this chain, there's what we are calling the androgyny. And androgyny oftentimes functions in esoteric and alchemical literature as the the fusion of things that we would normally consider to be opposites. And then a step below that, you have mineral man. In esoteric doctrine, there's actually four stages of the creation of man. So there's actually a mineral man, then below that, vegetable man, and then finally us, animal man. And what alchemy seeks to do is to get back to that primordial unity by climbing the ladder backwards. And if you look at transhumanism, we we were sort of stunned when we found this, because if you look at what the transhumanists are talking about, they're talking about the creative use of what they call the Grin technologies, standing for genetics, robotics, information technology, and nanotechnology. And as you get into all of the things happening, what the geneticists are talking about with making hybrids of of humans and and other species and, and even now, of course, with GMOs being such a, such an issue. And when you turn to some other transhumanists like, like Ray Kurzweil and so on, they're talking about the fusion of man and machine through robotics and, and computer interfaces and nanotechnology. They're really talking about each of these four stages. So the book, um, the book lays out transhumanism as an alchemical enterprise, and therefore it's both a philosophy and a movement. <laughs> so that's a long way around uh, around the bush to, to try and describe it, but that's essentially the approach that we take in the book. 
And would you care to speculate as to how, how far back in history uh, this particular agenda or philosophy may have existed? Oh boy, that's another, that's a great question. We, in the book, we decided to include a few chapters on certain authors like Oscar Wilde, Percy Shelley, um, even even Aquinas, believe it or not. And the reason we did so, and it's particularly clear in, in Percy Shelley, uh, we tend to the view that he is the actual author of, of the 1818 version of Frankenstein, not Mary Shelley. And the reason we think that is, is laid out uh, fairly clearly in the book, and then Dr. DeHart has his own book out on that topic called Shelley Unbound. But when you look at Frankenstein, it's really a novel about transhumanism. It's, it's a novel about the changes that are going to be brought about in mankind and in his culture and, and relationships by science and, and technology. And with that in mind, when you, when you turn back the pages of history and, and really look at alchemy itself, we could honestly say that alchemy and, and transhumanism as a as a movement, are, are at least a millennium old, if not older. Uh, transhumanism itself, as we, as we say, it's, it's kind of a modern update of alchemy. Now, in your book, you and your co-author, Scott DeHart, allude to the notion that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, is in some ways an allegorical piece of predictive programming in popular culture, uh, for the future transformation of human biology through technology. Now, do you think that Shelley was somehow privy to the transhumanist agenda in the early 19th century? And if so, where would Shelley have acquired these ideas? And, and maybe even expanding on that, what would have been some of Shelley's influences prior to even writing Frankenstein? Oh, that's that's a really great question, and I wish my co-author were here to ask, answer it because he's really the expert on it. But one of the things that, that people don't know about Percy Shelley that we presented in the book is that we, we definitely think he was uh, kind of prophetic about transhumanism because he was tremendously influenced by the writings of, of a little-known French uh, Catholic priest by the name Abou, of Abouye Barrel, all right? And Barrel wrote a history of the Bavarian Illuminati, and Shelley kept this, this vol- these volumes of history that, that Barrel wrote about the Bavarian Illuminati with him at all times. He was fascinated by the agenda of the Illuminati. and That's, that's really interesting, Joseph. Uh, I hear the bumper music percolating, so we're okay. just going to have to take a quick break. Uh, this is Patrick White filling in for Richard Serrett, who's figured out a way to the fifth dimension, and we're talking with <laughs> Joseph Farrell, author of Transhumanism, A Grimoire of Alchemical Agendas. Stay right there. We'll be right back. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides... You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Welcome back, friends. We're talking with Joseph P. Farrell about the transhumanist movement and the quest for immortality. 
I am Patrick White filling in for Richard Serrett. Uh, Joseph, um, you were just mentioning something about Shelley uh, carrying around, uh, I believe you said, the dictates of the Bavarian Illuminati on their person at all times. Um, why would they do that? Well, Shelley was fascinated. He was, he was again, kind of a prophet of the whole transhumanist movement, and he was fascinated particularly by the Bavarian Illuminati and their agenda, which was to be kind of a social revolution against all sorts of um, priesthoods and religion and uh, divine right of kings and so on and so forth. And Shelley was fascinated by this, and saw the cultural implications, and he kind of codes this into Frankenstein by setting the whole novel in a little kind of suburb of modern-day Munich called Ingolstadt. And if you look at the history of the Bavarian Illuminati, the founder of, of that particular organization back in the 18th century, was a professor of canon law by the name of Adam Weishaupt, who was located at the University of Ingolstadt. And, of course, you know, by setting the whole tale of Frankenstein there, he's kind of giving you a clue as, as to the wider cultural agendas. So, yeah, he was, he was really steeped in, in all of this. And, and the second influence, really, that we should mention, perhaps, in this, in this respect on Percy Shelley was Erasmus Darwin, who was, of course, the grandfather of, of Charles Darwin, and Erasmus, if you look at his body of writing, he was like Shelley, he was a poet. And he more or less foresaw the way that biology would eventually go under his, under his grandson and wrote a whole uh, series of poems about how science itself, how the universe is constantly transforming, that it's really not a a um, theistic universe, at least in the sense that, that Christianity and organized religion were, were talking about. So Shelley embodied all of that, really, in, in Frankenstein. And in regards to some of the other more popular literary works uh-huh. in, in the 19th and 20th century, um, I, I believe you also mentioned that Dante and Oscar Wilde uh, both presented some of the transhumanist ideologies in their works. Um, yeah. Do you think that these individuals were unwitting participants pushing the agenda, or were they doing so intentionally upon the behalf of their occultic orders to which they belong? Well, I I definitely think that you can make the case that Oscar Wilde was certainly influenced and and dedicated to a certain extent to that ideal. Um, We examined the the picture of Dorian Gray, which of course is, is... by far his his most famous work and it really is again about the transformation of a human being in a bad sense and and wild makes that very clear by decadence and and forswearing of of traditional morality and so on and so forth in dante's case it's a bit more difficult to say but if you look at the Divine Comedy closely and consider what he's really saying, it again strikes us as far more having far more in common with, with esotericism than it does with Christianity for a very important reason. When you look at the Inferno, Dante is led through the entire circles of hell and on into purgatory first of all, by a pagan guide, of course, by Virgil. 
and then he gets out of hell in a in a very unique way, and that is by climbing up the back of of Satan himself. So, in other words, Dante is is really telling you that that you've got to plumb the depths of of hell and all of that in order to emerge on the other side and into the divine light. And that's a very esoteric sort of of, of theme. Uh, we do think that there's something to be said that he probably was coding a lot more esotericism in his work than than meets the eye. In fact, there's been a an e-book recently that was published by Mark Booth, another Oxford graduate, who wrote a wonderful book called The Hi- Secret History of the World According to the Secret Societies. And he followed that up with this e-book all about the secret history of Dante, examining his um, esoteric influences. So yeah, we think that even in Dante's case, you're dealing with someone that's, if not if not wholly sold on the agenda, he's at least familiar with it. And usually these types of esoteric ideologies, you know, for the most part, can't be garnered unless an individual is somewhat submerged in these uh, secret organizations. Right. And, you know, isn't there some sort of connection between Oscar Wilde and, and the Golden Dawn? Well, there certainly is a connection between Oscar Wilde and Freemasonry. Uh, Wilde was, at one point during his stay at Oxford, he was indebted um, for all of the money that he spent on acquiring Masonic garb and, and Masonic jewels and so on and so forth. He was he was definitely an initiate into the Lodge. There's another kind of um, esoteric influence on Wilde at Oxford, and that was through his, his uh, mentor in his studies, a, a literary critic by the name of Walter Pater. And when you start digging around with Walter Pater, again, you're dealing with someone that's very, very familiar with the world of the esoteric and the occult. He writes about this in some of his literary criticism. So Wilde is definitely familiar with it. But Dorian Gray is is interesting because, again, Wilde is seeing both the good side and the bad side of, of what he sees coming down the pike with this move towards a scientific culture that is free from the constraint of traditional morality because the book of course is is about the decay of of someone that trades trades his mortality for knowledge and for experience and and decadence and of course dorian gray finally ends up dead when he finally kills the picture so to speak but um, that's that's another whole transhumanist theme this this whole idea of achieving immortality via the means of science yeah and and now i'd sort of like to move just a little bit more uh towards current time and uh you know if if anyone has ever seen the 6 million dollar man's opening sequence not only do we see Steve Austin's ill-fated aircraft tumbling down to the earth <laughs> right. and bursting into flames but you also hear uh, a rather unforgettable line uh, that goes as follows. Uh, Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man better than he was before, better, stronger, faster. Now, over the years, we've been subjected to some incredible predictive programming and mm-hmm. some ridiculously slick social engineering at the hands of Hollywood, television, 
uh, and so right. forth. Popular films like Universal Soldier, uh, Re- uh, RoboCop, which is being done for a second generation, uh, Terminator 2, even going back as far as Fritz Lang's 1927 film Metropolis. Oh, yes, yes. They've, they've been conditioning us for years, romanticizing the merger of man and machine. Um, what, what could you describe as some of the more subversive means that they've been using to condition the populace uh, in regards to accepting the transhumanist agenda? Well, the most subversive mean, Patrick, I think ultimately comes down to the, that all of this is being portrayed as something good, that there's no moral consequence to all of this. Uh, they're portraying it as an inevitability, and in a certain sense it is. I mean, these, these things are now coming down the pike at us so fast and so hard that it's going to be very, very hard to, to resist or escape it. The real, the real problem I put in my very first book um, when I started writing in this field is there is an old, old statement by a church father by the name of, of John Chrysostom. And he points out whether one agrees with, with the doctrine or not, I think the moral sentiment is, is very captivating. He points out that the reason that mankind was punished by death at the fall was in order to cut off further progress in evil. So if we can imagine for a moment the, the ability to achieve some sort of immortality or at least extreme longevity by way of science and technology, then we have to imagine two potentialities. We have to imagine either an Albert Schweitzer or a Mother Teresa living hundreds or thousands of years and being able to do what they do. And we also have to imagine someone like an Adolf Hitler or a Mao Zedong or Joseph Stalin living that amount of time and doing what they do. So in other words, the longer you live, the the moral tendency or habit of people is going to be exacerbated by the technology itself to an extreme degree. And, and that's rather frightening, but it is something that people need to bear in mind. Absolutely. And in regards to bringing about this um, transhumanist agenda, um, how would you generalize the approach that certain private interests or individuals will, will need to take in order to achieve this goal? Well, we're already seeing it. Uh, in fact, you know, I was thinking about this interview tonight before before your phone call. And two years ago, when we were in the process of writing the book, we felt overwhelmed by the amount of, of knowledge coming down the pike. But the book, in a certain sense, is already obsolete con- considering what they're talking about. Um, we're already seeing private groups that are creating chimeras of, of human beings and other animals, manimals they call them in, in transhumanism. We're already seeing now a push to surround ourselves with digital technology of, of almost an inconceivable variety, smart homes and so on and so forth. And you already have certain people in the transhumanist movement that have that have been implanted quite literally with computer chips and so on and so forth to enhance their abilities. So the, the, the whole thing is being pushed, and it's being pushed, as you say, precisely by private corporations. This is not happening 
in the realm of government or research. It's people like Ray Kurzweil working now for Google. Uh, you know, all of this is is is, is pretty wild, but but it's it's going to happen. Um, and and who's going to be able to resist in a certain sense to have better health, live longer, be smarter, you know, select the kind of children that they want to have, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you mentioned the relationship between Kurzweil and Google. Uh, just a, sh- a short time ago, a, a blog post on your website linked to an article detailing the recent acquisition of Boston Dynamics, uh, right. w- which is a robotics company by Google. And right. your remark at that particular time was that it was so provocative that I don't even want to begin to comment Now, if it's not too soon, could you speculate as to the implications of this merger and and give us your take on what what types of technologies uh, we'll likely see in the near future as a result of this uh, marriage? You you alluded to it already by by citing the old television series Six Million Dollar Man. The idea that we're going to enhance the capabilities both physically and mentally – by the application of technology, including robotic technology. In fact, one of the things we, we pointed out in, in the Transhumanism book is that the American Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, I, I like to call it the Diabolically Apocalyptic Research <laughs> Projects Agency, but, <laughs> but, in, but in any case, they are, they are researching the whole idea of fusing mankind and and robots by exoskeletons and increasing their their ability to perform on the battlefield by that means they're talking about fusions of man and and dolphins because dolphins are able to sleep with one half of their brain and stay operative with the other half so in other words imagine a battlefield transformed to the extent by this type of technology where human beings no longer have to sleep. So you're kind of doubling, if not tripling, the efficiency of, of the individual soldier. They've talked about other things, uh, implants, night vision retinas, you know, implanted in the eye, and on and on this goes. So in other words, we also have to ask the question, um, and and we leave the question open, I should say, in the book, but we also have to ask the question, at what point does all of this tinkering with humanity really begin to fulfill that desire to make a better human, the superhuman, the ubermensch? And are they going to be recognizably human in terms of their their emotional life, their ability to empathize with other humans, particularly those that don't have access or choose not to deploy any of these technologies? These are all questions coming down the pike extremely fast. All right. Um, my name is Patrick White, and I'm filling in for Richard Serrett, who is currently transcending space and time. And I am talking with Dr. Joseph Farrell about transhumanism. Do not go anywhere. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. 
Welcome back, fellow mutants. We are talking with Joseph Farrell about the transhumanist movement and the quest for immortality. Now, Joseph, we were just talking before the break about a really crazy organization known as DARPA. And (laughs) these guys are just absolutely pushing the limits of science. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Fringe, but I've always... (laughs) <laughs> I've always perceived DARPA to be just like a giant room filled with Walters. <laughs> yes, you know, I would agree with you there, and I'm a fan of the show. Oh, it's great. Super soldiers, universal antidotes and vaccines. Right. I, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, a few years ago when you guys were penning the book, that at, at this time, um, you know, the information is pretty much considered like outdated. And, and isn't that sort of like what some of the organizations within DARPA are doing? I mean, if, if we see it within the public realm, has it not already been deemed obsolete by DARPA? Well, yeah, this is, this is the other disturbing thing. And, and you mentioned a lot of things that they're up to, universal vaccines and, and so on and so forth. And DARPA really is kind of the, if you want to think of one particular government agency in the world that is more or less part of this transhumanist agenda, this movement, whatever you wish to call it, it would be DARPA, because they do have, as one of their explicitly stated goals, the creation of, of a super soldier. And when you when you strip away the military language, Patrick, what they're really talking about is the creation of a superhuman. And one of the things that is a constant in the whole transhumanist movement is this idea of the merger of man and machine, which which Dr. DeHart and I place at the second highest level in that alchemical reascent back up the ladder, because that's really the merger of man and mineral. They're talking about, about mineral man. And the disturbing thing here, and it's something that I think people particularly those who would be tempted by this whole idea that, that Kurzweil and others are talking about of, of implanting yourself with computer chips, downloading all of your memories and, and uploading them into a new body and so on and so forth, is, first of all, does the sum total of our memory and emotional life, does that constitute our person or is there something intangible and always inescapable about our, our our individuality that cannot be reduced to mere uh, material sorts of memory. That's the first thing I think that transhumanism poses. But in the wake recently that we've seen these mergers of Google and the robotics company that you referred to, the fact that Google brings on board Ray Kurzweil to, to be kind of a consultant in in the company of of where it should move in this transhumanist direction. The other thing we need to remember is if we're going to start talking about computer implants and, and so on and so forth, do we really want that in an era where we've seen the rampant NSA spying that, that has been revealed in the Snowden affair and and all of all of that and, and its implications? Do we really want to have someone with the ability to sit at a remote computer monitoring station and 
manipulate our memory, our mind, our emotions uh, to intrude on our privacy in such a way. I, you know, for me, the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a scene out of the television show Dollhouse. Yes. Yeah, yeah, where everybody's just working sort of in a hive collective. Yes, yeah. And I think ultimately this is the other danger to it. Um, we are dealing now with computer algorithms and so on, particularly if, you, if you've been following their use in, in the financial markets with, with high-frequency trading and, and algorithmic trading. We're dealing now with computer models that can really model aggregate human behavior with a great deal of accuracy. So imagine then plugging in directly to it, not just watching it on your computer screen, but actually, so to speak, having your mind be the computer monitor. Do we really want that kind of hive mentality? And again, it goes back to, to this idea, are, are we as individuals reducible to neurons and, and the information contained in, in our synapses and so on and so forth, or is there something more? And I'm certainly in the tradition that says there's something more. I think the big danger, the untested danger with the transhumanist movement is precisely, as you say, the reduction of, of our humanity to, to a hive mind, to a machine. For sure, we would lose our individuality right. uh, in, in order to fortify the, you know, the, the consensus trance, if you will. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. The yeah, the absolutely. Matrix. Now, um, I just want to take a sort of like a step forward to, I mean, er earlier you had mentioned uh, GMOs as part of the transhumanist agenda. Now, in terms of the development and the proliferation of genetically modified organisms by conglomerates like Monsanto, who I like to refer to as Monsatan, uh, <laughs> My nickname is Monster Santo. So <laughs> go right ahead. So Monsanto, Dupont, you know, is right. there is there purpose to somehow uh, modify the genes of human beings through the consumption of these genetically modified organisms? And and if so, uh, would you mind speculating on on how we're being modified? And is there any scientific data to support this speculation? Well, that's a difficult one because, of course, in a certain sense, it's, it's impossible to modify genetic code through the mere consumption of, of food because, you know, if that were the case, then those of us that like to eat meat, we'd be, you know, we'd be part cow or pig or something like this. It would start showing up in our, in our DNA. Yeah, and so, we'll... Sorry, Joseph. We'll, uh, we'll get back. I'm hearing the sultry sounds of uh, okay. the bumper music. Uh, just uh, hold tight, everybody. We'll be back shortly after the break. Don't go anywhere. This is The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back, friends. We're talking with Joseph Farrell about the transhumanist movement and the quest for immortality. Joseph, uh, just before the break, we were about to embark on a discussion about GMOs potentially being a plot to bring about the change of human beings through genetics. 
Um, right. Would you care to speculate on that being a possibility? And if it is, is there any scientific data to support that speculation? Well, yeah, I was I was mentioning, you know, in a certain sense, we we can't say that in all fairness, because we, we ingest foods all the time that have no modification of our, of our genome, of our genetic structure. But that said, we have to look at some other things that have been, that have been happening that have been reported now in some recent papers about uh, GMOs. They do appear to increase certain types of cancers and so on and so forth within people that regularly ingest them or within uh, animals, test animals that regularly ingest them and we don't yet know is this is this some sort of genetic response is it a complex response involving genetics and toxins and herbicides we we don't really know but this is the problem that that my co-author and I had with GMOs is the inadequacy of the testing that was done prior to bringing these things to market and during the break, I was thinking of something else that we need to mention with this GMO issue with respect to this genetic modification possibility. We need to test it for a long period, I think, before we release such things to market. And the reason why is the bit of alchemical legal sleight of hand that was used by some of these companies to pushed the GMO agenda back during the first Bush administration in the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s. They used a principle that they came up with called substantial equivalence. And what that was essentially was they said that, okay, our GMO corn or our GMO lima beans or what have you are substantially equivalent in terms of their nutritional properties to regular non-GMO corn or lima beans or green beans or what have you. Therefore, we don't need to subject them to the same sort of rigorous testing that we would with other things. But then they turned right around and said that because these things are modified, they're patentable. And because they're patentable, you cannot be found having a field containing our product unless we've sold it to you. So in other words, they've, they've had their cake and eat it too. And I think we need to go back and examine this whole issue of substantial equivalence to begin with, because the papers are coming out now that are clearly indicating that they're not substantially equivalent. So, you know, we need to revisit the whole legal issue upon which they, they founded this GMO empire of theirs. And there's also the issue, once you get into patents, of, you know, what happens once these certain patented genetics or, or struct DNA structures start showing up within the human body. Right. You know... If- you know, if they should, if they if they should show up in the human body, you know, and we pose this simply as a hypothetical because again, we realize that mere ingestion of food doesn't um, doesn't normally modify the genome. But suppose over time it does. Then does that mean that this genetic modification should it show up in a human population? exposed over time to GMO foods, does this mean that they then become property? So, you know, all of this goes in, <laughs> in all sorts of directions 
that when you get right down to it, you know, uh, we need we need to look at the whole um, the whole foundation on which all of that might be argued, which goes back again to this idea of, of substantial equivalence. Sure, and I don't think at any time the courts would rule in favor of the average, you know, Joe Blow citizen. I mean, think back to well, they the... they haven't thus far. <laughs> no, I mean, there's the example of the farmer in Saskatchewan who, even in the yeah. court, Monsanto had admitted criminal negligence, and, and the court still had ruled in favor of the corporation. So, right. you know, I don't think that if, you know, hypothetically down the road, a, a human were to exhibit patented, care, like, uh, you know, property owned by a corporation... You know, it's going to become a real slippery slope, I think. Oh, yes, it already is. Um, there were other corporations in, in this country that had grown embryos, human embryos, from, from stem cells and by certain techniques, and they were ruled property of, of the company. So, you know, we're already on the slippery slope. In fact, we're, we're I th- in my opinion, Patrick, I think we're about halfway down the slide. Um, if we don't get a grip on it soon, uh, it's, it's going to be a very bad thing. Fortunately, there's been a lot of pushback against GMOs in, in countries like India. Um, there have been, there's been pushback in France and, and Hungary and Germany and Poland and more recently Russia. So... I think it's going to come about, and, and I've been kind of predicting this, Patrick, that you're going to see the, the so-called BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, you're going to see them start competing directly with, with American agribusiness giants by selling heirloom seeds. It's, it's going to quickly become a geopolitical issue, in other words. Yeah, I mean, even here in Canada, there's, there's the controversy over... Uh, the Canadian government allowing the genetically modified salmon eggs uh, right. to, to be released into the public. And, and what happens when these eggs become fish? And then what happens when these fish reproduce with your regular fish in the ecosystem? Right. I mean, exactly. now you're, you're getting like these frankenfish all of a sudden. Yeah. And are those, are those frankenfish, if they continue some of the genetically engineered genes are those frankenfish are they going to be property or are you going to have to pay license fees to a gmo company to to uh, consume them and so on and so forth and when you get right down to it i think that ultimately was their agenda they they wanted deliberately uh, in my opinion although again i have no direct evidence for this but they wanted deliberately to alter the entire food supply so that they could claim ownership over it. So in other words, we're back to issues of of power and control. So does it really boil down to helping and facilitating life, or does it boil down to controlling and owning life? Well, I think it's the latter. Um, To be quite honest, Patrick, I'm not personally persuaded that the propaganda that these companies have used, uh, which has been to tend to say that that they're doing this to to help combat human hunger and starvation and so on and so forth. Um, in fact, there have been, I've heard, I have not been able to verify, but there have been apparently studies recently that have shown that even the productivity of certain fields over time with GMOs drops dramatically as, as compared to, to normal un, unengineered uh, foods and crops. So I think it, it boils down really to an issue of control and power. I think that's, that's the name of the game. And the reason I say that, Patrick, is in the book we talk about 
how the whole idea, to a certain extent, of, of genetically modified foods was cooked up by the Rockefeller Foundation way, way back in, in the 1950s. And more recently, I, I just uh, had a book come out called Covert Wars and, and the Clash of Civilizations. And you can even find a reference in the famous Brookings report about you know what would happen if we were to discover evidence of extraterrestrial intelligent life or, or their artifacts. Even in that report, there is a reference to alternative crops way back in 1960. Wow, and it, and you know, saying that it, it it makes me question how vaccinations or even possibly eugenics could possibly tie in. I mean, you mentioned the Rockefeller yeah. Foundation, so so what about vaccinations and, and eugenics? Then how would that tie into the transhumanist movement, if at all? Well, we don't talk about vaccinations or eugenics in the book, but it's a, it's a legitimate question. And, and to speculate a bit, I think that there is the danger inherent in the transhumanist movement, and I kind of alluded to it earlier in a comment. There is the danger. Let's say, let's say we have a transhumanist culture begin to emerge in our lifetimes. Let's say that the rich have access to nanotechnologies that can do cellular repair of the body and so on and so forth and that thereby they begin to extend their life uh, let's say they have computer implants and are able to download knowledge you know in five minutes and, and master an entire subject are they going to look at that portion of humanity that either does not have access to that technology or for whatever reason chooses not to deploy it, are they going to be considered equally human by them? Are they going to be, by the same token, uh, perhaps rounded up and, and you know just used as, as some sort of wage slave cattle? Um, all of these dangers, I think, are inherent in it. And quite frankly, Patrick, given the behavior of particularly the, the Anglo-American elites over the last few decades, I wouldn't put anything past them. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I, think, I think they've become, to a certain extent, um, kind of obsessed and enamored of their own power, and they're just doing a lot of this simply to see what they can do and get away with. So nothing surprises me. Drunk with power. So we've got, a, with we, power. We've got a few minutes left, Joseph. Um, uh-huh. once, once they achieve this transhumanistic agenda. I mean, what comes after that? I mean, haven't you essentially at that point cheated death? Well, to a certain extent you have, but, you know, I go back to what I said earlier. Is this necessarily a good thing? Do we want to see people like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong or, you know, people of that ilk? Miley Cyrus. Yeah. (laughs) Do we want to see people like that uh, living hundreds, if not thousands of years? Um, the the real problem we are trying to avoid moral issues with our technology but you know it's only going to heighten the moral issues rather than make them go away and disappear um i've said many times patrick that we are living in the greatest era of cultural transition you know we tend to go through them about once every 500 years but we are living through the greatest era of cultural transition ever in all of recorded human history. 
um, the world and and social mores and and manners and customs, I think, are going to look very, very different, even perhaps in our lifetimes. I'm glad I'm alive at this point in time, and I would probably, if I had the ability to throw myself into a time machine and go back or forward, I think I'd probably just stay right here, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, the old Chinese proverb, or or curse as the case may be, may you live in interesting times. (laughs) It certainly can't get more interesting than this. Yeah. Now, in regards to anything uh, exciting or noteworthy coming up for you, Joseph, I mean, I know you just released the two uh, Covert War Breakaway Civilization books. Uh, what are you working on right now, and what can we expect in the in the near future? Um, right now, I'm working on a book that is going to be kind of a sequel to um, Financial Vipers of Venice and Cosmic War. Um, I can't be more specific than that, but... Uh, I'm working on that. I may be may be doing a conference toward the end of June with uh, Richard Dolan and um, Catherine Austin Fitz, Peter Lavenda, and some other people uh, toward the end of June about the secret space program and so on. So I'm going to be I'm going to be pretty busy until early summer. Are you still afraid of flying? Because I'd love to get you up here to Toronto one day. Yeah, I'm just not a flyer. I'm I'm, I'm a driver or a train train traveler, but just not a flyer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. Um, you know, there's just a couple minutes left. Uh, just quickly, just to give some, something for the people to Google after we're done, uh, just quickly, what's the 2045 project? The 2045. Now, that, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. My memory's drawing a blank on that one. I, I think someone had stated that by the year 2045, they expect... Uh, robots to be able to procreate with other robots and humans. Oh, yeah, I've seen that, but I don't know enough, Patrick, to feel comfortable about commenting with it. I've seen things like that. I haven't um, haven't yet commented on it. Um, that emerged, if I remember correctly, after we did the book. But uh... Well, regardless... I'm sure something interesting is going to happen in the next few years anyways. Technology is always taking tremendous leaps forward. Joseph Farrell, author of Transhumanism, A Grimoire of Alchemical Agendas. Absolutely brilliant spending the last hour with you, sir. Uh, Tons of fun. Thank you for having me back on, Patrick. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, sleep well tonight. You too. All right. That was one tremendous hour. Uh, I can't promise that I'll live forever, but I can promise that I'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett 
From Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the program, everybody, and thank you very much for tuning in. My name is Patrick White, and I am your designated driver tonight as Richard Serrett is off defending the universe. Just a quick programming note about next week. Richard Serrett will still be away, so taking control of the mothership will be none other than the executive director of the Zeland News Network, Victor Vigiani. And he'll be talking with Rosemary Ellen Guiley and some other great guests. So make sure you're tuning in for that. Victor knows his way around the studio and always delivers a great show. Just a quick bit about myself. Uh, my wife, Kadina and I opened Conspiracy Culture Bookstore back in 2006. We are the only bookstore in Canada that is fully dedicated to the conspiracy genre. We sell books, DVDs, magazines. We've got a really cool art gallery. We do regular events with some pretty big names. And you can check us out online at conspiracyculture.com. Or, if you're in the greater Toronto area, we're at 1696 Queen Street West at Queen and Roncesvalles in Parkdale. So come on by and say hello. I'd love to chat. Also, uh, I've been a big fan of this particular program and Richard Serrett for nearly 10 now. So for me to be able to sit in and run the show for one night is quite a big deal. I'd like to say, uh, say hello to my old man if he's still awake and listening. And thanks to all of you guys for being here tonight. Don't forget, you can follow Richard Serrett on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And you can also follow Richard on his website at richardserrett.com, where there's an archive of past shows, past guests, links to Richard's television show, current news. You can also subscribe to Richard's newsletter. And if you scroll down a little bit on his homepage, you'll notice that there is a featured book or the book or DVD of the week. And this week, the featured book is Viral Mythology, How the Truth of the Ancients Was Encoded and Passed Down Through Legend, Art, and Architecture. The book explores how ancient civilizations and cultures relied on various means of spreading information within the context of their stories, oral traditions, religious texts, cave and rock art, pottery, paintings, and even their monuments, edifices, and holy sacred sites. And with us tonight to talk about this fascinating new book is one of the authors, Marie D. Jones. She is a best-selling author, a screenwriter, researcher, radio show host, and public speaker. She's the author of 2013, End of Days or a New Beginning, Science, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomenon, Looking for God in All the Wrong Places, Destiny versus Choice, and has also co-authored numerous books, including The Resonance Key, The Trinity Secret, This Book is from the Future, The Grid, and now most recently, Viral Mythology, which was written with Larry Flaxman, who is Marie's partner in Para Explorers. Marie D. Jones, thank you so very much for spending some time with us this evening. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. 
Um, so tonight, from cave paintings to YouTube videos, I guess. Yeah, your progression, huh? <laughs> yeah, your book talks about ways that information has been shared throughout the ages. Right. Mm-hmm. Could you provide some examples of the earliest known forms of communication? Well, grunting was probably one of them <laughs> before we really developed a language. But we wanted to really take a look at how ideas and information have been communicated, passed down to gen- you know generation to generation, how they've gone viral, not just um, in ancient times, but in primitive times as well. So we're going all the way back. And really the first way that we, we were able to express ourselves was with art, with very crude art, such as rock and cave drawings, carvings and etchings, which really started out as being mostly lines that maybe uh, you know, spoke about and people were measuring things or they were marking down the number of days that were passing. It might have been a very crude form of a calendar. But eventually people started using paints that they made and painting images of animals that they hunted, painting images of themselves in warrior dress or of pregnant women uh, because they were you know, absolutely fascinated by the whole process of birth. Um, and that, uh, that kind of progressed a little bit after that to rock art, to more sophisticated carvings and etchings as they developed their tools. And eventually it became the art of the ancients, which included paintings, mosaic art, pottery, and ceramics, and statues, and statuettes. So as we progressed, as we evolved, the way that we communicated visually evolved as well. This is long before writing ever came into being. Other than that, what we were doing was verbally telling stories to each other. And we were, we were passing information along orally because we didn't have a written system yet. So you've got the, the primitive art and you've got the oral tradition that has been passed down. And this is before writing came along. Yeah, and some of the examples of ancient uh, artwork, I mean, if you go to the Cave of Swimmers and other places around the globe, I mean, some of the, the images that are depicted in this cave art is really quite interesting. Yeah, it runs the gamut from what was probably basic information for the artists at the time, you know, bison and deer and whatever animals or or prey were present, whatever animals they happened to be hunting or maybe following, uh, in a sense, to keep track of where their food source was. And sometimes you had really uh, dramatic imagery of rituals. I think around the time when we started to develop religious thought, religious tradition, you see a lot of cave art that looks very ritualistic. So again, as our ability to communicate information progressed, so too did the most crude art that we had at the time. Another interesting thing is there's a lot of unusual images of beings, you know, (laughs) for lack of a better word, that maybe maybe don't necessarily look human, uh, giants. Uh, helmeted figures, and those are the ones that are the most fascinating because they point to the possibility that primitive humans were interacting with other types of entities, even as we suggest today people are interacting with extraterrestrials or aliens or, or angels or demons or what have you. Sure, and there's also the possibility that some of these 
ancient artists were also under the influence of some shamanistic type drugs. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Everything nature made itself available to primitive cultures and they knew what to use in order to get high and they had visions just like people do today um, and so they may have been just translating onto the walls of caves or onto rocks the shamanistic visions that they were having so there may they may be fictional in a sense but they still had a symbolic truth to them that the people at the time understood a lot of the shamanic imagery was very archetypal and it was very much appropriate and associated with the cultures at the time, how they viewed nature, what their cosmology was, what they thought their place was in nature, whom they felt they were communicating with in terms of getting spiritual guidance and wisdom. So even though they may be painting wild visions the way that even artists today paint gorgeous, wild, crazy paintings that uh, seem totally imaginative and fictional, there's still some truth in there. There's still some symbolism that needs to be taken note of. And typically, um, within these uh, groups of people, who, who would be the artists amongst these civilizations? Would it just be your average everyday individual, or was it limited to, say, like the shaman or the elder of the group? You want to know something? It was probably the same way it is today, and it was whoever could do the art well. Because if you think about it, you know, who are the artists of today? They're the people that have that skill, that have that talent. Now, they may very well have uh, only allowed certain members of their uh, communities or villages or what have you, most of them were nomadic tribes, to, to do the art. Maybe the shamans themselves did it because they're the ones that had the vision, so they could obviously best transform the vision inside their head onto the rock or the wall of the cave. But I also suspect that just as we are, that a lot of the behavior of people thousands of years ago is probably very similar to those of us today. The best artists did the best art. The best artists were the ones that were chosen to depict the images that they felt were important to this culture, this community. And that applies later to writing, too. You're obviously going to have your best storytellers telling the stories. You're obviously going to have your best writers getting the information down. You're going to have your most organized members of the community doing the recording and the sort of administrative record-keeping. So it could very well have been that, that, you know, Joe and Mary were the two best artists in the tribe, and they got to do the imagery. But you also had a medicine man who only he could transfer his vision in his head onto the canvas, quote-unquote, of a cave or a, a rock. And And because art and symbols are often limited to interpretation, you know, there was an eventual progression, I guess, to the written language and eventually then to the oral traditions. And within these oral traditions and myths, we see some, you know, recurring motifs and themes and symbols. Um, could you possibly discuss some of the more recognized archetypes from throughout the ages? Absolutely. And these are things that everybody sort of, again, on a subconscious level, we all understand what the symbolism is. Um, you know, one of them is the world tree, the idea that at the that there is a tree that supports the heavens and the earth. A lot of cultures believe that there were three levels of reality, three levels of existence, heaven, hell, earth, heaven, earth, underworld. There were different ways to describe those three levels. Um, but whether you were, it was uh, Norse mythology or Hindu, uh, the Maya, the world tree or tree of life is a very prominent and popular symbol 
that many cultures shared. It's sort of, a, to, to some people today, think it may have been describing a sort of wormhole, a way for us to connect with other realities. We didn't have the scientific understanding of something like the multiverse or the worm, wormholes or parallel universes, what have you. So we described it as a tree where you have the branches that are visible, you've got the roots underneath, and that connects different levels, different dimensions, different realities to those that understand how to travel the tree. Absolutely. All right. Uh, time to pay some bills and appease our corporate masters. We are talking with Marie D. Jones about viral mythology. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these messages. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back, my good friends. We are talking with Marie D. Jones about viral mythology. My name is Patrick White, and I am filling in for Richard Serrett, who's off exploring Inner Earth. So, Marie, we were just... (laughs) Inner Earth? (laughs) Yeah, he's off doing some top-secret stuff. Oh, okay, so you can't tell, huh? No, so I'm just being silly throughout the evening. Now, hey, good for you. Yeah, just before the break, you were you were mentioning the the world tree. We were talking about recurring uh, archetypes, yeah, and themes that have right. existed throughout the ages. There uh, are a lot of them, yeah. Probably, yeah. you know, the, the most important, probably the oldest, the most important, the most widely known is the snake or serpent. That's right, and that would go right back to the creation story. Absolutely, Garden of Eden. Uh, Buddha ran into a serpent called uh, Mukalinda. And this also would include dragons, you know, dragon imagery, dragon symbolism. And a lot of people have come to associate, even though this is a very old, um, almost revered, maybe sort of a a fertility-oriented symbol, what happened is later as religious traditions developed, they sort of applied a very negative, almost satanic uh, coat to the poor little serpent that really, I think, in the beginning was more about exploring fertility, sexuality. But that is a common theme. And it's not just symbols that we see everywhere in different mythologies and different religious texts. It's also ideas and themes like um, the search for God, the search for the divine, or a belief in revenge, somebody setting out to get revenge or retribution against someone. The cycle of birth, death, and rebirth is a huge one. Uh, and that was very prominent when agriculture became sort of a, the nor- way, normal way of life. People started to really look at that whole cycle within the the food that they were growing, the grains and the wheat that they were growing. Um, redemption, that's another good one. Fate and destiny. And, of course, the big one would be love, you know, the search for perfect eternal love. So those are ideas and themes that show up everywhere, and, and yes, there's also symbols, like we said, of the snake, the world tree. The green man is another real popular one. This sort of nature god that, again, represents fertility and growth. So and you have to say to yourself, you know, is everybody just thinking this stuff up all at once? Or is this coming from a natural progression from our own evolution that we would, as human beings, no matter where you live, no matter where you are in, in the world you're going to be thinking about life and death and and rebirth. You're going to be thinking about controlling nature. You're going to be thinking about 
acquiring love or wisdom and the hero's journey another wonderful motif that you see in everything from the life of christ and moses and buddha to today's stories of, of luke skywalker and indiana jones and you know, the, the guys from the hobbit and <laughs> lord of the rings yeah and i mean these are, these are yeah. just things that people contemplate they're pressing issues Exactly, exactly. So there may not be anything really mysterious about the fact that cultures that may have lived two, 3,000 miles away from each other that really had no means of communicating. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have Facebook. They couldn't email each other. Um, at best, word of mouth would spread ideas, or if there was some form of travel on horseback or other animal or a little bit of sea travel obviously might have taken place. But really, these ideas may have just appeared to to every culture just because of where we were at in our progression. And it makes sense because, I mean, there's there's been times where I've had an idea that I thought was pretty original, Yeah. sort of sat on it for a little while, and then yep. within a week of having the idea, I'm seeing it come to fruition absolutely everywhere. Yeah, and let me tell you, as a writer, that's one of the most frustrating things that writer's face and, and any artist even musicians you always hear about these lawsuits of somebody plagiarizing somebody or some well I, you know if it's outright word for word plagiarism somebody stealing somebody else's movie script idea or somebody uh the rolling stones having a song that sounds exactly the same as what was it the symphony of life i don't know if you remember that lawsuit that went on uh, the verve that was the name of the band because they had uh, melodies that were very similar. Well, uh, you know, were, was somebody ripping somebody off, or is it just that that particular melody hit more than one person at a time? Um, you know, movie ideas, ideas for stories and novels and TV shows, I find it really impossible to believe that they only come to one person at a time. I think those ideas are floating out there, in the ether, and people are just sort of tapping into them, and it and it could be done collectively as well as individually. Sure, I mean the ideas are static, and it's just uh. a matter of time before it ultimately finds its way into somebody's head. Exactly, and you hear a lot of artists, a lot of writers talk about how I don't, you know, this really isn't me writing this material. I'm just sort of channeling it for it's coming to me from somewhere else. I'm sort of like a vessel through which the story wants to be told or the song wants to be sung. And it sounds so woo-woo, but if you think about it, I know as a writer that maybe not so much with nonfiction because that's a lot of research, but when I'm writing fiction, there are times I really feel like I'm getting this from somewhere else. This is not coming from me. It's coming through me. And if you haven't experienced that before, it's hard to understand, but the same concept could have applied to people thousands of years ago, who were getting the same ideas, the same symbols, the same imagery at the same time. If it's meant to happen, it's meant to happen. Yeah, yeah. Now, in in Chapter 4 in your book, you talk about the various types of storytelling. Would Would you mind explaining the differences between legends, parables, fairy tales, and ballads? Okay, well, legends tend to be fantastical or fictional stories, yet they have the seed of truth. They have a a core of truth at them. In other words, a legend, let's say Paul Bunyan or Johnny Appleseed, these were real people who really existed and 
did something. Johnny Appleseed, in the case of, of what he did, was to spread a particular type of apple seed that became very successful, and he owned a lot of orchards. He became known for being a very uh, adept grower of apples. Okay, big deal. Well, what happened is at the time, you've got people telling stories about this man because he would go from town to town and he would sing. Okay, that's a little eccentric. So you've got this guy who grows apples going from town to town, and obviously as people start telling each other about it, they're going to add on their own little spin, their own little interpretation. Eventually that that little piece of fact about who Johnny really was gets blown out of proportion, and it takes on a much bigger, it becomes bigger than he actually was. It takes on a legendary status. It's almost like broken telephone. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah. But it always starts out with something sort of innocuous and true, that there was a guy who liked to sing, and grew apples, okay? But by the time you get to the 200th person, he's got magical powers, and he can do all kinds of supernatural things, and he wore a a pan on his head, which a lot of people claim that he did. Um, So legends have the core of truth, but there's so much fiction piled on top of them that it really becomes difficult to figure out okay, was this a person that really lived? Was this a historical event that actually took place, or was it totally fictional? Parables are stories that are told to impart a particular piece of wisdom or truth. They're very symbolic. Now, usually a parable is not about anybody who lived or anything that happened, because the sole purpose of a parable is to teach you a lesson. There are a lot of parables told in the New Testament of the, of the Christian Bible. There are parables that take the form of fairy tales. A lot of fairy tales, which were just fantastical stories that had a certain theme or message they wanted to impart, that uh, take on the form of a parable. In other words, if you want somebody to get a piece of wisdom, sometimes the best thing to do is not tell them directly, but to tell a story about somebody who went through that and learned that lesson. and Look what happened to them. Uh, I think we humans don't like to get direct advice. We get a little bit offended at that. So parables were sort of indirect ways of giving advice and teaching people wisdom lessons. For sure. It's a great way to convey uh, an important message. And like you said, most people, due to the ego, they don't like being spoken down to because they've already got it all figured out. Right. I could say to you, hey, Patrick, come on, you you need to do this. And you're just going to say, Murray, come on, shut up. You know, what do you know? But if I say, oh, Patrick, listen, I'm going to tell you a story about a friend of mine. And there is no friend of mine, but I tell you a story that I know will offer to you a piece of advice that I think would help you for a particular situation you might be in. You're going to be a lot more open to that because you think it's just a story. Your subconscious is going to take the message from that that I want you to take. Um, Our conscious minds, like you said, ego gets in the way. We shut it down. We don't want to hear it. We think we know best. So really, even uh, fables, which used animals and magical figures, um, same thing with fables. They were intended to tell a real fun, fantastical, entertaining story, but it had a message that was snuck in there. That's a perfect way of encoding information into something that seems so trivial, like a story. Yeah, and once people typically figure out the underlying message you're trying to convey to them, you know, they embrace it a little bit more just because they figured it out. 
Yeah, and they did it on their own. They didn't have you in their face telling them. They took the story, they chewed on it in a sort of subconscious sense, and then they got it. The aha little light bulb came on. And that's a, a way that I think that most parents deal with their children. You know, if you tell your child to do something directly, often they're just going to roll their eyes and not do it. But if there's a more imaginative way to tell them why doing what you want them to do would be a really good thing, eventually they're going to get it and go, oh, hey, I caught that. You mean they get it on a much deeper level than just the surface awareness. And the same really applies to ballads, folk tales, fairy tales. There's Ballads were really a way to tell stories about situations, historical events, people, love stories, love affairs, through song. And a lot of times it was meant to be entertaining, but a lot of times it was meant to be a way of encoding information in a very entertaining song so that the person hearing it really didn't know that they were getting something heavy-duty underneath the surface of that song. Sure, it would hit them on a subconscious level. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you had a lot of traveling minstrels, and, and they understood that people like to be entertained. But if you can entertain somebody and at the same time teach them something, you've got them. You know, rather than just somebody going from town to town lecturing people. I don't think that was going to work very well. But if you if you cover it up in a nice beautiful song and you're playing your instruments people are going to pay attention it's almost like christmas carolers you're 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 going to listen to them you know yeah everybody loves infotainment oh absolutely well i think the best way to convey important information may very well be in an entertaining fashion because then you've got people's attention and you engage them you're not talking down to them you're not you know toying with their ego or making them feel like they're being treated like children or you're being condescending, what have you. You're entertaining them. You're telling them a story. But in that story, wow, there's an awful lot of truth and wisdom that you're getting sneaky into their subconscious. Yeah, personally, I like to sugarcoat my bleak realities with a heavy <laughs> dose of humor. And, and two of my yep. favorite storytellers of all times are Bill Hicks and George oh, Carlin. Oh, my gosh. You know, George Carlin could say the most scathing truths, but but when it's a comedian or a humorist, they get away with it. And you kind of think about the things that comedians get away with saying. That, you know, if you were to go up and it, it, even things that might sound racist or sexist or just totally offensive, when it's covered with humor, we listen because we laugh. We're being entertained. Yeah, I didn't, you know, we didn't write about comedians in here. And now you got me thinking that is one of the most, probably the most um, effective ways of communicating information is to make somebody laugh. It is a great tactic indeed. Yes. Now, <laughs> um, we're, we're about to take a break shortly, but... Before we get to that point, I just wanted to um, bring about a term which uh, I, I saw quite regularly as I was reading the book, 
which was Archeo Enigmas. Yeah. And and these are mysterious. I mean, there's there's tons of mysterious objects and structures around the world that have yet to be fully understood. Right. And 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 that is how you term them as Archeo Enigmas. Yeah. And Larry and I have to be honest and say that we did not coin that term. We we saw it here and there, and we thought, wow, that is really a cool word. And it totally sums up these objects, which are called oops and oots, objects out of place and objects out of time. So anything that's enigmatic that refers to, uh, you know, archaeology or digging up our history really falls under that banner. And there is no shortage of what we would call archaeoenigmas. No, they're being discovered every week, it seems. <laughs> it's every time I go online, somebody's saying, oh, you know, we discovered this ancient battery or spark plug or what appears to be a, a small a GPS system. Uh, the thing is, is that we're finding all of these things, light bulbs, electrical sources, that are so old and so ancient, they should not have existed at the time that they've been dated back to. Now, what you'll have is a lot of people say, well, we're just misdating them. No, that's not true. Let me jump in there, Marie. We'll, it's very interesting. We'll get back to this idea Absolutely. of enigmas once we get back from appeasing our corporate masters. Everybody stay right there. Don't move a muscle. We'll be back after these messages. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back, friends. We are talking with Marie D. Jones about viral mythology. I am Patrick White, filling in for Richard Serrett, who's currently neither here nor there. And we will get back to the subject. So, Marie... Just before the break, we were discussing archaeoenigmas mm-hmm. and the fact that there are tons of mysterious objects, structures, megaliths uh, scattered around the world that have yet to be fully understood. Right. Now, my question is, why are there so many striking similarities amongst these objects, regardless as to where they are geographically situated? Right. And uh, pyramids would be a perfect example of that, how there are thousands of pyramids all over the world, same basic shape, whether it's, um, you know, the regular straight-sided pyramids or step pyramids. But there, when we talk about archaeoenigmas, what, we, what we're doing is challenging our understanding of our own history, because a lot of these objects, people have found working batteries that are 2,000 years old. Battery wasn't invented until, I think, sometime in the 1800s. People have found light bulbs that are thousands of years old, uh, spark plugs, uh, you know, certain types of pottery that shouldn't have been there at that time that supposedly we thought came thousands of years later. So obviously all of these are objects that do not belong in the times or the places that they were discovered in. So we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? Does it mean, one, that our actual history is much older than we imagined, that humans have been around longer, that humans have been uh, achieving things that we thought impossible thousands of years ago? So is our history the way that it's been written and presented to us wrong? The second theory or idea is that a lot of these things were not ours. They were given to us. They were given to us by possibly extraterrestrials. So you get that whole 
ancient alien, ancient astronaut theory, where it is believed that over the course of human evolution, we have been visited by extraterrestrial civilizations that have helped us achieve leaps in science, medicine, technology, even art and architecture that we couldn't have achieved on our own, in our own natural progression, our own natural evolution. The third theory is that we're just dating these things wrong, that we're just wrong. They're not as old as, as we think they are. We're mis calculating the dates. And I think that that's really sort of a lame theory because we have such sophisticated methods of dating objects now. So a lot of people really like to focus in on the second theory, the ancient alien or ancient astronaut theory, that, you know, where where did this stuff come from? And why is there's not a lot of it? I mean, we haven't dug up every archaeological site that there is. But we don't find these things every day the way that we find pottery and, you know, household items that people use, things that we know sort of fit our idea of what our own history is. But every now and then one of these shows up and it just really turns that idea on its head. And I I think it's in Chapter 7 in your book where you talk about the paleo contact or or what you would describe as ancient alien visitation. And, you know... For the UFO skeptics out there who absolutely refuse to believe, um, could you possibly offer up some other explanations for these, you know, massive leaps and bounds in regards to uh, human sophistication? Absolutely. I mean, the idea that we have outsourced our knowledge is the most popular, I think, you know, in part because of the popularity of the History Channel show, the uh, Ancient Aliens and... Um, shows like that that suggest that the only way that humans were able to make such leaps was with help from, you know, more advanced civilizations. That may not necessarily be true, because I think if you look at how we evolve today and how we sort of go through these snowballing leaps in technological advancement, I think we sell ourselves short as human beings. Every culture, every society has its geniuses, has its prodigies, its savants, its great thinkers, its imagineers, and people who are very futuristic in their thought. And it's possible that the Einsteins and Edisons and Teslas of old were coming up with these objects just as people are doing so today. It's also possible that we're talking about a collective, what Larry and I refer to as the grid, a collective of all realities, what you want to call it, the multiverse, parallel universes, alternate dimensions, where all information exists. Every idea that ever was, is now, or will be, is in this field or grid of information, as Jung called it, the collective unconscious. And is it possible that different groups, different cultures are tapping into this collective at the same time, or maybe just a few individuals, and getting ideas that seem to be a little more advanced for their particular culture. Another one is, you know, another way that, let's say with the pyramids, that the design and structural commonalities could have spread really could be from word of mouth. Now, it would have taken a lot longer for an idea, a blueprint of sort, to spread 
you had people that were riding horses, riding donkeys. They were moving around a little bit. There was some sea travel. And I know John Ward, who wrote the prologue, is a big proponent of the more organic and natural ways that information was transmitted among, amongst ancient cultures. He, he doesn't uh, lean towards the ancient alien theory. So you have people who do travel. They are nomads. They're taking their ideas with them. Now, to us, it looks like those advancements happened overnight. But back then, it really took a lot longer. And I think that it's just our interpretation of how quickly it happened that is wrong. All right. Well, we hear the bumper music percolating. We need to take a quick break. And when we come back, more viral mythology with Marie D. Jones. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is Patrick White filling in for Richard Serrett, who is away on a top-secret mission. We are here <laughs> with Marie. tell us where, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and we're joined tonight by Marie D. Jones, and the topic is viral mythology. So, Marie... Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about subversive symbols, secret messages, occult architecture, you know. Right. Uh, the hidden stuff. Yeah. <laughs> steganography, the act of writing in code or cipher. So my yeah. question, yeah, my question to you is, why would the ancients go to such lengths in order to conceal certain philosophies or ideologies into something so simple, yet so complex, like a symbol. Right. Well, again, symbols are understood on a subconscious level, but they also could be used as codes for only those who are in the know. And, and the reason why information often throughout history had to be hidden or encoded or embedded in and other things was really to keep it from the authorities at the time, whether they were political authorities or religious authorities, such as the church, that may have frowned on the spread of particular knowledge or information. And that's just a part of our history that, you know, it, it's kind of a shameful part of our history that so much wisdom and knowledge and even scientific knowledge may have been lost because it wasn't permitted to be publicly discussed, because it went against the ideologies of the politics and the religious traditions of certain times in our history. So really, the people who wanted to get this information out, if they didn't die, if they weren't executed or killed in the Inquisitions or the Crusades or what have you, the only choice that they had was to either form secret societies, the sole purpose of which were to continue uh, passing throughout each generation certain rituals and knowledge and information uh, that was considered more occult or esoteric or hidden. Or they did it out in the open, like hidden in plain sight, just using symbols. Uh, a lot of people believe that part of the history of, of the tarot card, the tarot card decks, includes hidden imagery that was meant to be hidden from the authorities at the time. And tarot decks were owned by everybody at one time because they were just like the playing card decks that, you know, every family had in the 60s and 70s. They were really created as an entertainment device, but people saw that there was a, an opportunity to 
make decks of cards that had images and symbols that were occult and esoteric and kind of went under, flew under the radar of the authority figures at the time. It, it makes me think of, you know, the, the old Masonic architecture where they created and, and built specific structures in order to convey certain um, ideologies. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and oh. you know, for the layman who couldn't understand and spend the time researching this information, they, they felt as though just walking someone through the garden or, or bringing them through the building would affect them on a, on a subconscious level and somehow heighten their, uh, their awareness. Oh, everything from naming certain columns after, you know, biblical figures that they felt were important to building their temples or their churches or their edifices according to the golden mean or very uh, sacred geometrical measurements because they knew that on a, a very subconscious level there was an aesthetic to that that we would we would get, we would understand the meaning of. But you could just walk into one of these churches or temples and maybe you know, just within your conscious awareness, it might not really hit you that you are getting wisdom <laughs> through the actual way that the walls were erected, the measurements of rooms, how how big one room might be compared to another, um, spiral staircases that are meant to represent the Fibonacci sequence, that so they really understood that, first of all, the importance of number and measurement, uh, sacred geometry, the idea of as above, so below, copying concepts of heavenly power and cosmological power, bringing it down to earth and including that in their structures and edifices. All of that stuff is a lost art. We don't do that anymore, except for these organizations, the Rosicrucians, the Masons, um, you know, and other organizations that kind of pop up now and then that claim to want to pass down the information of the ages. And also, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of these symbols could be used for nefarious purposes also, I would imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the Masons, boy, they really get it for that. I mean, you have half the people believing that this is a wonderful sort of philanthropic organization that is really passing along metaphysical wisdom, and you've got half people thinking that they're satanic and you know, engaged in all kinds of rituals and in, involved in every aspect of politics and religion and the New World Order and the Illuminati and all that. So I, I think when something is hidden, a lot of times we, we automatically apply a negative connotation to it because we don't understand it. It's shadowy. It's done in secret. But just because something is done in secret doesn't necessarily mean that it's evil or sinister, but it's just, I think it's just human of us to want to apply that label to it. It's the... Fear of the unknown. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, so in your book, you've, you've basically taken a pretty thorough, comprehensive look at how communication and the sharing of information has evolved throughout the ages. Could you perhaps speculate as to why what goes viral this day and age typically contributes to the devolution of man? <laughs> Well, gee, take a look around. <laughs> Here's the problem. Our primitive and ancient ancestors did not have the Internet. They did not have the absolute 
overwhelming amount of information to process and determine what is important and what isn't that we do today. Thanks to the Internet, thanks to other forms of communication that we have today because of technology, we are bombarded with ideas and information. And a lot of it may be total crap. It's up to us to sort of weed out what we feel is a positive or beneficial influence in our lives or something that we can use on a practical level. So the amount of information that we are dealing with is so much greater than our ancestors, but the quality of a lot of that information is so much worse. Yeah, the we viral would... mytho- you know, The viral mythology that we're creating today for our ancestors, they're going to have a hell of a time looking back and trying to figure out what was important to us. Yeah, we, we went from sharing stories about morality and creation to filling our friends' inboxes with videos of dancing squirrels. Right, and look at this funny cat, and here's what I had for dinner. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Look, I love it. You know, I'm on Facebook all the time. It's fun. But there is that fine line where the overabundance of information is not necessarily a good thing. Because our brains can only handle so much. Our brains can only process and filter so much before we sort of go on overload. Uh, but again, we don't think about what we're leaving for future generations. And we certainly don't think about three, 4,000 years from now when somebody is digging up an excavation in our neighborhood, what they're going to find, what they're going to interpret that to mean, what they're going to think of us as a culture or a civilization based on what they dig up. It's pretty scary. It is, yeah. And you kind of think about it, it kind of makes you feel like, well, gee, maybe I should be a little more aware about the... You know, they talk about the carbon footprint. <laughs> We're leaving an information footprint that is, I think, even uh, as as important, if not more so, because... A lot of what we're doing is just distracting ourselves from, like you said, things that were important to our ancestors. We've completely forgotten those things. We're so distracted by trivialities. We don't tell stories that are empowering to people on a symbolic or subconscious level. We do sometimes. There are good films, good TV series, good books out there. We we share information that is practical or meant to help people or educate them or give them wisdom and knowledge. But you got to dig that out from all the crap. That's true, and, and one has to wonder whether or not our access to this information and just, I mean, the information, it's, it's, it flows in torrents these days. Is it, is it something that was contrived to inundate us and to basically, you know, desensitize us to the information that we've got this access to? Or is this just sort of a natural progression? And if it's if it's a natural progression, what's next? I know. I hate to think that every single thing that is thrown at us is done for somebody's particular motivation or agenda, but I certainly agree with you that a lot of it is. I think that there is manipulation of information. But I will also say that as people, we are such curious, easily distracted creatures that we find our ways to manipulate ourselves with crappy information. We find ways to distract ourselves. We almost don't need those bigger, more sinister elements doing it for us. I almost think that, you know, we're we're doing the job just fine for ourselves of not paying attention to what we really should. Absolutely. There's no shortage 
of material out there to leave your mouth breathing, that's for sure. Well, it's easy. It's easier to be distracted than it is to deal with your life. or to, you know, And even if you have a goal, it's easier to not go after the goal and just bury yourself in distractions. I think that's just human nature. For sure, and why put the why exert the energy when you can live vicariously through your exactly. your friends' feed on on exactly. your social networks? <laughs> right there, you go. Facebook. Let's blame it all on Facebook. Exactly. Now, <laughs> there's there's just a few moments left. Um, is there anything that you'd like to tell us about what you've got going on? Like what's coming out in the next in the near future? Absolutely. And- well, Larry and I have another book out that we're really proud of. It's called The Grid: Exploring the Hidden Infrastructure of Reality. It's kind of a culmination of a lot of the research that he and I have done together over the last seven years. It's sort of our multiverse theory, and uh, um, we feel like it it can help possibly explain paranormal phenomenon, altered states of consciousness, uh, experiencing different levels of reality. So we're really proud of that book, The Grid. We've got some speaking events and things coming up both alone and together. Um, We will be at the Paradigm Symposium together. I think that's our first appearance together in October. But we got a lot of stuff going on. We're also venturing into fiction, which is going to be really exciting, because what we're going to do is exactly what we wrote about in this book. We're going to write a novel that has embedded within it a lot of the factual research that we've done. So we're really excited to see if that works for us the way that it has for our ancestors. Uh, but we have websites, paraexplorers.com, which is P-A-R-A, paraexplorers.com, mariedjones.com, and larryflaxman.com, so people can kind of keep up with what we're doing. Wonderful. And here in Toronto, your books are available at Conspiracy Culture Bookstore. All right. But <laughs> where where can, where else can our listeners obtain your work? You know, they're in brick-and-mortar bookstores, I know, in Canada, in the States, in England. But for anybody who's not living or doesn't go into a bookstore because there isn't one around anymore, all over the Internet, Amazon.com, Barnes Noble, Books A Million, uh, all the big names. Wonderful. Well, Marie, I would really like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending the last hour with us. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. It was such an honor to talk to you. Yeah, and if you're ever up this way and find yourself passing through or in and around Toronto, definitely give us a shout, and maybe we can facilitate an event or a book signing oh, for you. Oh, that would be awesome. I would love that. Thank yeah, you. lots yeah. of fun. So thanks again, Marie D. Jones, author of Viral Mythology. We will be wrapping up shortly. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. My name is Patrick Joseph White co-owner and operator of Conspiracy Culture Bookstore, conspiracyculture.com. My beautiful wife, Kadina, is here with me. We're just getting ready to wrap up the night. We're in the last little bit of a home stretch. Uh, Thanks for spending the evening with us. Uh, I would like to remind everybody to follow the show at richardserrett.com. You can follow Richard Serrett on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And if you got a few moments... Head over to his homepage and sign up for his newsletter. We're trying to get 500 members. And if we can bolster that number uh, within the next few hours before Richard gets back, that would be a nice treat for him. So, that being said, have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. 
I'm Patrick White, reminding you to think responsibly, and I'm out. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.